Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Radiant REIT for sponsoring this episode. Radiant REIT is the first ever investment trust to bring mortgage REITs to the solar energy market. And you'll learn more about Radiant REIT during this episode. Thank you. The U.S. residential market installed 712 megawatts of solar. California led the way in this market, installing almost 300 megawatts. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangent, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to have my co-host, Lee Wang, back in the house. Yes, Lee and I haven't done an episode in a while, so it's great to have you back on the podcast. And we're also covering, I think, a very interesting topic, 2020 solar predictions and trends. Yeah, definitely. So we're wrapping up, heading towards the end of 2019 as we tape this. And Benoit and I always want to look back upon the year and look towards the future, like most little time of reflection. So today we'd like to deliver you an episode that talks a little about the year ahead and what we can look forward to as far as Benoit's analysis of the current situation, any pending legislation that's going to affect the solar industry and a bunch of things he's going to cover today. Yeah, definitely. So we could get into it. One of the big things that we've talked about on the podcast is about trends for renewables, specifically really company states and citizens pushing for renewable energy and companies with 100% renewable energy goals. For example, everyone knows the big tech companies, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. I actually recently on episode 58 of the Solar Maverick podcast, Nate Giovanelli, who's the director of business development from IGS Solar, talks really about a cultural shift of mindset of having more renewables people believing in climate change and then taking sustainability as well very seriously. Also, we've talked in the past of states with 100% renewable energy goals. California has their goal for 2045, New Jersey in 2050, New York in 2040. There are a lot of other states as well that have 100% clean energy goals or a certain percentage of their energy in clean energy. So it's been pretty exciting to see. And then Lee and I have actually done podcasts where we've talked about companies going solar and specifically doing corporate PPA. So for example, first companies focused on solar on their property, but then to be able to get renewable energy or solar energy past their existing footprint, they've been basically providing long-term power purchase agreements with solar projects and then purchasing the energy from it to allow them to get to 100% renewable energy. These are actually virtual contracts. It's actually not an exchange of power. The most common structure used for these corporate offsite PPAs is really called the contract for differences. The contract for differences or they use the CFD is a financial hedge between the buyer and seller for agreed upon fixed rate for the offsite power. If there's any variation that exists between this fixed rate and the wholesale rate, the rate at which the seller sells the power into the wholesale electricity market, the difference is accounted for and refunded to either the buyer or seller at the end of each month. And then the buyer would pay the difference if the wholesale rate is less than the fixed rate and the seller pays the difference when the wholesale rate is greater than the fixed rate. But there are risks that are related that companies need to consider before, during. Right. What are some of those risks, Benoit? Some of the risks is basis risk, where 
you know, you either reconcile at the node or the hub. Usually people are negotiating at the hub because there's more of a market there. So you have more market pricing. The challenging thing is though that you're farther from the power. So there could be transmission and distribution costs that are added that make it higher than a risk that you maybe didn't think about it. Maybe there's some new generation that comes online. Basis risk is probably one of the biggest risk related to the project that you have. The challenging thing too is big companies that tend to do these corporate PPA transactions because they have an established energy team. These contracts are extremely complicated to structure. So what we see is it's really very big companies that are taking advantage of the corporate PPA. But we think that there'll be an opportunity, hopefully for midsize and smaller commercial industrial to potentially get into these offsite corporate PPAs, if not potentially working with a third-party energy supplier or buying energy through a green tariff program that the utility has or potentially a community solar project. So there's more programs available for these smaller? For the smaller and mid, we think in the future, obviously there are some programs today, but we think in the future, there is going to be more of a market for the smaller commercial industrial company to take advantage of renewable energy and so that they could also have 100% clean energy goals. Speaking of 100%, I I'd like to go back to the top of the hour where we talked about states, individual and 100% renewable energy goals. You listed California, New Jersey, New York. Are there any other states that might be setting this kind of a deadline for their 100%? So there are other states. I think there are about 13 yeah. states that have 100% right. renewable energy goals. Like we spoke about Hawaii in the past that has other goals for that. I'm trying to think my head. Yeah, I can't but think. these are some of the most prominent states that you're mentioning. Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, the most prominent, obviously, is California. It's yeah. the biggest state with the quickest goal to get to 100% renewable. So 100% renewable, how is that graded and how do they measure that, trying to meet that goal? So it depends actually on the state Mm -hmm. because they could either, it's how they define renewable resources and clean energy. So it really kind of depends on how they'll look at that. Each individual state sets their own criteria. They set their own criteria on what how they look at clean energy and renewable energy. Right. How does the New Jersey, New York impact your business, these goals? Sounds like it's going to help set the pace for for more projects. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously they have goals and obviously they're trying to as well incentivize renewable energy development. New York has a very, if you're not familiar with VEDER, it's the value of distributed energy resources. And it's the way of compensating for distributed renewable energy. And that's really one of the big incentives that they have other than like the megawatt block incentives. And then New Jersey currently is coming up with a transition program. They actually released some information on the transition program to reach these goals and then a finalized sort of program. So yes, I mean, there seems to be a focus on incentives to help produce more solar energy. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that with all these states taking leadership in this position, it's going to lift up the entire industry just by mandating certain standards by a certain amount of time. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. So you also had some predictions and thoughts about the residential market based on some record third quarter results in the industry in the U.S. 
This is some figures cited by the Wood, McKenzie, and Solar Energy Industries Association. So why don't you talk a little bit about what's going to go on in the residential market in 2020 and beyond? This was actually an interesting that in the third quarter of this year, the U.S. residential market installed 712 megawatts of solar. California led the way in this market, installing almost 300 megawatts. And what's interesting about this is- That's a large chunk of that. That's a large chunk. And it was interesting because the Northeast for residential solar, it wasn't as a big factor as it was in normal years. And the reason why I'm actually bringing this up is because we also believe that climate change is also increasing solar and battery deployment. So one of the things that Wood McKenzie was saying was that in California, obviously there were the utility power shutoffs that left millions without power for certain periods in 2019. There were also the wildfires that were happening. Electrical transmission lines belonging to PG&E caused some of these fires and basically these shutdowns. And so what they're finding is that customers actually want some sort of resiliency and they're actually looking at basically installers are reporting demand increases of three to five fold in the second half of this year for storage. That's allowing more solar and storage to come online in California. But then it's also happening in other states as well because of storms across the world that people are not just, you know, your companies, but residential customers are making resiliency as one of the top of the mind, what they're kind of looking at when they are looking to deploy solar and batteries is some sort of resiliency component to it. So we think that this potentially could be a trend, you know, next year, California actually has like great incentives for battery storage. And we think as lithium ion battery costs continue to go down, that you're going to see more of an incorporation of storage with solar. And we think solar and storage, there's a lot of incentives in the pipeline to develop solar and storage, both standalone and then together with all the different uses of storage. So frequency regulation, battery backup. Yeah. Do you think there will be any types of emerging storage types in the future? Do you see anything beyond what's, what's currently on the market? Yeah. So, I mean, lithium ion obviously is the accepted and most financeable. We're seeing the biggest cost declines. And I think there are other technologies out there that I'm not really aware of that potentially in the future could definitely. But lithium ion continues to proliferate and be optimized and it, it continues to be a strong way. Yeah, just because of the economies of scale, people getting more comfortable constructing it and, and being able to lower the cost and that being a focus, we're seeing it continuing. The same drops that we saw in solar we're seeing as well. Right. And then you also wanted to talk a little bit about community solar, right? That's something that your company, Renew Energy, has been heavily involved with, the NYCHA project. And tell us about what you're seeing as far as companies getting credits and community solar. Yeah, definitely. So another trend we think is the increase in community solar. Basically, if you're not familiar with community solar, it refers to local solar facilities shared by multiple community subscribers who receive credits on their electricity bill for their share of the power produced. So what basically, there's a lot of people today who don't have access to solar, meaning homeowners who have shading issues, renters, businesses, and they're able to then actually buy the solar power from a solar project in the utility service territory. Also, this gives access 
to solar to low moderate income, LMI, which has been why a lot of government entities want. There's this perception that solar is only for the wealthy, but this community solar basically gives access to solar to everyone. And so we're seeing states prioritizing having a low moderate income component to it, specifically like in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. Basically, New Jersey has like a pilot that they have for 75 megawatts per year for three years per year, which comes to 225 megawatts. And they've actually, for the first year, the 75 megawatts, which ended in September this year, they received 650 megawatts from 252 applications. So there's a lot of demand for solar, for community solar specifically. There's actually some legislation in Pennsylvania as well. I know you're from Pennsylvania originally, where this year they introduced a bill called HB 531 to allow community solar projects in the state to amend in Pennsylvania, the alternative energy portfolio standard. Also Dominion Energy is actually, which is based in Virginia in their service territory, they've issued an RFP for a pilot for community solar. So I think this is gonna be like a continued trend of, and why developers like community solar is instead of having a utility project where you get a wholesale rate, you're getting a discount to a residential rate or a discount to a commercial and business customer rate, which is a lot higher than a utility service rate. Just to give you an idea, like for example, in New Jersey, the wholesale rate could be two to four cents per kilowatt hour. And then potentially like a residential or commercial discounted rate could be from eight to 14 cents or 15 cents. So that's pretty significant. That's a pretty significant. Yeah. Some of these community projects really taking off. Have you seen a lot of success stories here? Yeah, there's been a lot of construction of these community solar projects in Minnesota, Colorado, New York. There's been now a lot of projects coming in service, Maryland as well. So we're seeing different states where it's really Massachusetts is another big state for community solar. So yes, we're definitely seeing a lot of success with these community solar programs. You also talked a lot to me about these green tariff programs. Explain to our listeners here what those are and how will they impact things in 2020. So green tariff programs are actually programs that the utilities have for their customers, which are usually businesses or residential customers to basically purchase green energy. And they're effectively acting as an intermediary from different solar projects. So we think over time, that's going to be a continued trend. And that's something that basically small and mid-sized businesses could be an opportunity for them for their renewable energy goals. And we think as they request that from their utility that the utility is going to provide some sort of green tariff program. Hi, this is Benoa, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Radiant REIT for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Radiant REIT is the first ever investment trust to bring mortgage REITs to the solar energy market. For the solar developers and EPC developers out there, financing with the Radiant REIT Solar Mortgage REIT will transform how you think about the business of project development. With the Radiant REIT's financing, you can increase project cash flow and you could retain ownership of your projects. The company's cradle-to-grave financing package includes the entire capital stack. Radiant REIT arranges tax equity, 100% construction financing, and up to 99% term financing at competitive rates with no upfront fees, including legal and diligence. Co-founders Jim Spano and Jeff Just 
are solar and finance veterans who brought together a team of experts to create and offer this innovative financing model, enabling developers to capture the true value of their development. They're committed to addressing the financing gaps that exist in today's market, especially for small and mid-sized developers. Radiant Rui will remove the stress of financing or refinancing and allow you to maintain your focus on your projects. Let them be your outsourced structured finance department. Visit RadiantReit.com to learn more and to submit your expression of interest form today. All right, great. Another topic I hear you mention in our overview here is bifacial solar modules, right? So tell us a little bit about what those are. If you don't know what bifacial solar modules are, basically it's power that can be produced from both sides of the bifacial module, increasing the total energy generation. And they're often more durable because both sides are UV resistant. It was interesting. The reason why I brought up bifacial solar modules is they were initially exempt from the tariff, basically the tariff that the U.S. put on foreign solar modules. But then actually in October the Trump administration actually put tariffs on bifacial panels. And then actually a court order came that withdrew the tariff because there was only 19 days notice to the public without an opportunity for the affected or or interested parties to comment. So now there's actually not a tariff on bifacial panels. And the reason why that we're bringing up this is because what we're seeing is that the solar costs are continuing to get less costly. The efficiencies of solar panels are increasing. The square footage too, or the size of the panels are getting smaller for more power density. Also balance of system costs are becoming lower cost of financing. And then this is essentially like a new technology that it was interesting to kind of see what was happening with the different, with it not having a tariff, then it having the tariff and then it not having the tariff. It's pretty interesting to kind of see how that's impacted the market because people started designing their projects to have bifacial panels because the tariff was not involved. And then when the tariff wasn't, there was a lot of re-engineering and then now there isn't the tariff anymore. So it's interesting if you're not familiar with the tariffs, just to give like a high level overview, Basically, on January 22nd, 2018, the Trump administration levied a 30% tariff on solar imports to the United States. This tariff covers both imported solar cells and solar modules known as solar panels. Then basically, the tariff will last for four years and fall by 5%, dropping to 15% tariff in 2021 and then basically eventually getting to zero. And it's interesting because SIA, which is the national lobbying group in solar, talks about how the it's called the Section 201 tariffs on the solar industry. It led to 16,000 fewer jobs from 2017 to 2021. They say they estimate the 10.5 gigawatts of lost solar deployment, enough to power 1.8 million homes and avoid 26 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions. 19 billion was lost in investment. So it's interesting because obviously it had an adverse impact on the industry. Anything where you're increasing the price to do business is going to impact it. That doesn't include like the tariffs on inverters or raw materials. So it's interesting, but the industry finds ways of adapting. As we talked about, like solar panel costs continue to go down and the tariff is based on a percentage. So the impact was less 
than we expected. And then basically the industry has found creative ways from the supply chain and other ways of getting around sourcing from other parts of the supply chain to keep projects moving. And then as solar becomes more sophisticated, as we talked about the efficiencies and financing and system costs, that it was able to offset some of the tariff impact. Because one of the biggest risks related to the industry is like the investment tax credit. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the 2020 risks here that, that you're looking forward to. And you mentioned this tax credit. Yeah. So basically the ITC is a federal tax incentive that gives solar owners a 30% return on the project's total tax liability in any of the market's segments. And it's scheduled to sunset, basically dropping from 26% tax credit in 2021 to 22% in 2022, and then it decreases to 10% in 2022 for utility and commercial solar projects, then expires to zero for residential. There's been a lot of support within the legislator of the U.S. Congress to keep the 30% incentive. So there was initially some legislation that was introduced in July of 2019 for both houses of Congress to induce legislation to extend the solar ITC for five years at its full 30% value. Also in November of 2019, the House and Ways Committee released a comprehensive clean energy tax package that includes a five-year extension of the 30% tax credit and new incentives for energy storage. I know that people are hoping within the solar industry that it actually gets passed in a bigger tax bill. Right. This 30% solar investment tax credit was actually introduced by a Democrat in California in the House of Representatives. So as you could see, it's really the Democratic Party that's really you know taken to implementing renewable energy legislation, but it's dependent on everyone, really, both the Republicans and Democrats, for it to hopefully get passed. And it's a big risk related to developing projects because even at 26% versus 30%, that 4% is a big deal. And there are certain projects that won't get constructed because of the step down. And then there was actually as well, if you purchase 5% of the EPC cost, you could save harbor, you could qualify for 30% next year. So what a lot of people are doing is basically safe harboring 5% of the panels. So You'll see a lot of construction of projects that still qualify for the 30% ITC next year. So this is a big concern. So definitely reach out to people in your state senator or your house of representative and get the word out because this is really going to impact the economics related to the solar industry. Yeah, it's going to be a huge impact, it seems like, based on these numbers. So, yeah, that's great. But no, so... That takes us through most of your industry predictions and assessment for 2020. Any sort of top view advice for people heading into the new year? You want to talk about some of your interests in your business and what you're looking to achieve in 2020, and then we can segue into some of your personal uh, shifts? Yeah, definitely. So we're focused on developing commercial, industrial, and utility scale projects. We do have a focus towards community solar, incorporating low, moderate income housing. So yeah, we're reaching out to commercial, industrial, building owners, landowners, 
also the, another important part of it, as we spoke about, is having like the corporate PPA. So we're working with talking with companies related to corporate PPAs. We're also involved in SREX as well. And then developers actually reach out to us as well to help with sourcing financing for projects. So I think we're going to continue to do what we have been successful with. And we've also do research as well on different solar markets. So if anyone's interested in learning more about it. So that's info at renewenergy.com. <laughs> yeah. The email's at info at yes, R-E-N-E-U energy.com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So check us out there. Benoit, personally, I know this has been a big year for you, 2019. Wish you continued success in 2020. What are some of your personal resolutions or whatever you want to call it? I know that's overused. What are you uh, looking to change on for yourself in, in 2020 to help these mavericks out there with some of your tips? Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, we're all work in progress. I'm working on trying to get better every single day. And it's interesting because I don't look at it as resolutions because I don't think it should always happen at the beginning of the new year. It's something that if you see you need to improve on. Start now, right? Start now. Yeah. So for me, it's being more mindful. I talked about, and we've talked about before, like I've incorporated like a meditation practice using Headspace so that I'm more mindful and being more present. Sometimes it's challenging. I know we've talked about this before, but the only thing you really could focus on and which I'm working on getting better on is being in the present and not focusing on the past or the future. You have to plan, but you really only could cover the present and you really should only focus on the things that you can control. So, that's so you, even when you're planning, you should be present in your planning. So that's what you're saying there. It's not that you don't look back, reflect or look ahead in planning. It's that are conscious of when you're doing each of these things. It's funny, I'll tell the listeners out there, I use the Rival app called Calm, but it, luckily it was a Benoit that turned me on to the practice of meditation. And what's really good about meditation is that you totally aren't good at it in the beginning, but the mind is, you can be trained like a muscle, right? So what I found that meditation to help me with, and it's not while you're meditating, it's kind of the day after you've meditated for a while, and Benoit talks about being present. What I've learned through meditation is that you can train your mind to become more present. So when you notice that your mind is wandering in a moment, so I'm talking to Benoit right now, I'm locked in, I'm focused, I'm looking at him. Quite often, that's not a chance. I, you know, it could be daydreaming about lunch or what you want to do on New Year's Eve. When After you meditate a while, you become more aware of when you float out of that moment. And you can kind of snap back into it. So I think that that's been really helpful for me, just the practice of it. And then it does start to become a habit to snap back into the present. Yeah, that's really great feedback. And I'm excited, you know, that I provide a suggestion and you incorporate well, it. LeBron uses calm, so it must be better. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, it's actually pretty significant. In case you don't know, LeBron James has become an official endorser, I guess, spokesperson for the Calm app. And I believe the app that Benoit uses, Headspace, was the first to market. And his name blanks him, but he was kind of the forebearer of the bringing meditation to the masses, the founder of Headspace. But I latched onto one of their rivals, the Calm app. But what's significant about someone like LeBron James becoming a spokesperson, obviously there's money involved and there's that pure endorsement deal. But rarely does sort of a masculine figure come out and endorse that he needs help with his mental training or him admitting that he needs help to frame his mind and, and how that performs helps his performance on the court. 
It's a pretty big step for society, I would say, just to have that mental health become more in the forefront. So I applaud this movement and I encourage everyone out there, you don't have to meditate, but take assessment of your own mental health because it's it's often quite the pathway to happiness or unhappiness, right? So it's one of the things we, Benoit and I talk about things you can control and things you can't control, but it's one of the things you can try to take control of. So it's important. Yeah, that's a really great topic to talk about. And I agree with Lee about that. Yeah. So here's to 2020. Cheers, everyone. And another great episode of The Solar Maverick. Again, if you have any feedback, questions, comments, want to hear certain topics on the show, hit us up. Yeah. And we appreciate this is the first full year that we've done the podcast. So we appreciate all our listener support and any feedback. As Lee said, feel free to reach out to us. All right. Great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. 